So when I was a child, I learned a little saying that was intended to make me feel better when other kids were being unkind. I'm sure that you've heard the same saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? Anybody familiar with that little saying? Okay. If you're familiar with that saying, and if we were to take some time this morning to um, evaluate the relative truth of that statement, I think that we would all agree that the statement means well, but it just isn't true. It's just not true to say that words will never hurt me. In fact, words are very powerful. And Psalm 12 really focuses on the importance of speech. This morning we're continuing our series entitled Finding Purpose in the Psalms. We're studying Psalm 12. According to its title, if you look there in your Bible, it says to the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp. Now the word there is the, the Hebrew word Shemineth, a psalm of David. According to that title, this is a, a psalm that David wrote, used by the children of Israel in their public worship gatherings. It had some details there about their worship. When we read this psalm, I think what, we'll, what you'll see is that it's written from the perspective of godly men who see that the society around them needs to be called to repentance and to return to the Lord. And that very few faithful men are left and those need God's protection. This is a great example, by the way, of what God's people do when wicked men increase in their land, they cry out to the Lord. It's always been God's way of dealing with evil in a given society. That is for his people to pray. When the righteous people pray, the Lord is moved. Well, let's look at Psalm 12 together this morning. Notice what David says there, beginning in verse 1. Help, Lord. For the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, every one with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor... For the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Let's pray and ask the Lord to guide us as we study the psalm this morning. Dear Lord, again, we come to you because we acknowledge that we need your help. We come to you as we study the scriptures because we realize this is your word. And since you are the ultimate author of the word of God, it conveys the message that you want for us to hear today. So I pray that as we study it, you would help me. 
Help me to speak as I ought to speak. Help me to present the truth of your word so that it accurately reflects what you intended to say. I pray that you would help us to receive it with tender hearts so that we would respond to the truth in obedience and faith. Pray that you administer it to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. I think today that the simplest outline is the best for this short song. And it comes in two parts. Okay? The first is in verses one through four, and I've put it under whoops, I guess I should have had that for you when we had to go through that. Forgot. The first part is verses one through four, and I put it under this heading. The ungodly are false. The second part, in verses 5 through 8, offers a contrasting view that the Lord is true. This two-part division is also reflected in the summary statement. And it's okay if you didn't get these jotted down. We're gonna have, you're going to see them up there in a minute again. Though if we were to say it in a sentence, we would say it this way. Men distort the truth, but God's word can always be trusted. Men distort the truth. But God's word can always be trusted. I'm going to look at the first part of this psalm this morning and identify, uh, or rather as it's identified by David here in verses 1 through 4. As I said, we put it under the heading, the ungodly are false. Look at verse 1. David says, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. This verse is a cry for help. Derek Kidner says that it's as if a man of God has looked up to see himself surrounded and his allies are all gone. Standing there in isolation, many men would just give up, right? When you raise your eyes and you look and all you see are enemies and no, none of your allies can be seen. might decide that's a good time to give up. But not this man. David signals for help. He's not retreating. See? Verse 1 tells us right off the bat, he's not backing down. He's not giving up. He's crying out for help. This cry for help is based on a simple observation that the faithful men are becoming fewer and farther between. Their influence is growing less and less as the days go by. I, I picture it this way. I think of like a, a, like a room lit with candles. And one by one, the candles in the room are going out. Right? And, and just imagine that with me. What happens in that room as the candles go out one by one? The light begins to fade. The shadows grow darker. They fill more of the room until only one candle is left. And all of the rest of the room is shrouded in darkness. This is what David saw as he looked out at his own people. Frankly, this may be how it appears to you today. You look out at the world around us, the society around us. You might see what appears to be dark land, darkness growing stronger, the light 
growing dimmer. But I want you to understand from verse 1, the observation we make here, this is, this is not a time for us to look for a path of retreat. This is not a time for us to, to look for a way out. Instead of looking for a way out, we need to look to the Lord for help. That's what David does right here at the beginning of the psalm. That's why he's crying out to the Lord. He is our Savior. He is the deliverer of his people. And David is right to cry out to him when the darkness is closing in. And so the first thing that we see here is that God's people, though they may be outnumbered, cannot surrender or retreat. I think David here shows us this from verse 1. We can't surrender. We can't retreat. That's not what it's time for. We look around at the world and we see darkness and it's time for us to look to the Lord. For us to cry out to Him. Not to look for ways that we can back down and escape. David's observations go beyond his own circumstances. And he includes a description of the, the very darkness that he sees around him. Look at verse 2. He says this about the, the, the man. He says, the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Then he describes them, verse 2. They speak idly everyone with his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak notice here that he says that their speech is empty it's vain i think it's especially descriptive when he says that they speak with flattering lips and a double heart the word for flattering lips the word for flattering literally means smooth they speak with smooth lips and a double heart. Again, it, it, that, the phrase double heart there actually is, in the Hebrew, a heart and a heart. They speak with smooth lips and a heart and a heart. They have a deception. They have this this deceptive way about them. I think it's a, I think it's a really gra graphic description here. And it's not generally a compliment when we say that somebody's a smooth talker, right? Think about that. If you say, well, that person's a smooth talker, what does that suggest? It suggests that they, that they, they speak very well, but sometimes smooth talk is just cover for deceitful heart smooth talk is cover for manipulation right all the best salesmen I know are smooth talkers I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But that's what David describes it here that's how he says here they have smooth lips but hide a deceitful heart now, there was a problem, apparently this was a problem 3,000 years ago. Pretty sure it's still a problem today. We look around at our world and what we see is this, and this is the problem that we see, that we have twisted the gift of speech for evil purposes. I think we need to take ownership of this. That's why I put this in the first person. We have done this as human beings. We have taken the gift of speech and we've twisted it 
smooth lips and a double heart. That's what we've done. Flattering lips and a deceitful heart. We are inundated today with voices. Voices that deceive. Voices that manipulate us. You know, we, we joke about politicians and their lies. And we laugh because we don't really know what else to do when the media covers for them. You know, we've elevated cheap and worthless things and call it entertainment. We even pay marketers to lie to us and tell us that our lives will be happier and more fulfilled if we buy their products. And we pay them to do it. How are we supposed to avoid becoming a cynic? Do we look around in our world and we see that we have taken the gift of speech and we have twisted it, we have perverted it, so that we have, have, have given credence to lies, to manipulation? Who are we to trust anymore? Who can we believe when all of the voices that we hear around us are deceiving, are lying, are flattering? Who can we trust? So David speaks about this in his day, but it reflects very much, I think, in our day. David continues, though, in verses 3 and 4. He says this, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. And then notice he actually quotes them. Who have said, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? This is another problem that we have. We have declared our independence from all authority. Notice this is the use of our lips. This is the use of our speech. Not only do we, are we characterized by deception, flattery, but we have declared our own independence. This is the ultimate in self-deception. You see, we use our words to deceive others, but we use them to deceive ourselves as well. This is the person who says, I'm going to overcome by the power of my own ideas. I'm free to think however I please. And no one can tell me any different. According to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the definition is this. See if you can figure out what word I'm defining here. One who forms opinions on the basis of reason, independent of authority, especially one who doubts or denies religious dogma. Any idea what the word is that, that Merriam-Webster is defining? One who forms opinion on the basis of reason, independently of authority, especially one who doubts or denies religious dogma. The word is free thinker. Free thinker. I don't know if you've ever come across that term anywhere. Free thinker. You ever met anybody who calls himself a free thinker? It's a nice sounding term, isn't it? We want to be free thinkers, don't we? That sounds like a good idea. And a free thinker is someone who forms opinions on the basis of reason, independently of authority, especially one who doubts or denies religious dogma. By the way, free thinkers have a website. It's called nobeliefs.com. You might think I'm making it up, but I'm not. 
I was on that website this week just doing a little exploring. It's interesting. No beliefs. They believe a lot of things for not having any beliefs, really, if you look at the website, but that's another discussion. Again, David wrote about them 3,000 years ago, and today they have a website. And they boast about the great scientists and atheists who live by the same credo. And what is their credo? Well, David tells us in verse 4, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? You see? It's a declaration of independence. But it's not a declaration of independence from the king in England. Right? It's a declaration of independence from all authority. Who is Lord over us? We will be Lord. That's what it is saying. That's what David saw when he looked around at the nation of Israel around him. Look around at our world. It's the same world. It's the same thing. We see it everywhere. Free thinkers. Of course, you need to understand that this kind of thinking is not exclusive to those who call themselves free thinkers. You don't have to be a, a card-carrying member of nobelief.com in order to think this way. This is the way that we think as men and women who are sinners who are in rebellion against God. This is what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Defying the authority of God. Eating the fruit that they thought would make them like God. And that's what you and I and every sinful human being does. Anytime we determine to live according to our own heart rather than according to God's word. So this is the problem that David presents the ungodly are false. They're false to others. They use flattering words and deceptive heart, but they even deceive themselves, declaring themselves to be free of all authority. But the Lord responds to David. The Lord responds to David under the heading here that I've included, the Lord is true. Look at verse 5. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. God has heard the cry of the oppressed. The ones who have suffered the flattery and arrogance of the wicked, and he will arise. This word oppression here in verse 5 is very important because it means havoc violence or destruction he says the poor have endured not just unfair treatment they are suffering devastation and injury you see david looks around and yes he points us to the speech that's corrupt but they're well i'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here but it never stops with just corrupt speech it may start with that but it ends with violence and injustice and destruction. And that's what he's seeing. That's what God says. I'm going to respond to that. Right? He will come to their defense. 
He specifically promises here to set him in the safety for which he yearns. I love this. Verse 1, David cried out for help. The word for help that he uses is the word for deliver. Save me, Lord, he says. The righteous man is fading away. And here in verse 5, the Lord says, I will arise. I will set him in safety. I will protect him. That's what his heart yearns for, and I will give him that safety. What do we do with God's word? What do we do with God's word when God has spoken on a particular subject? Can we trust that his word will come true? I see some of you want to nod your head and say yes. That's okay, you can say yes. Can we really trust? If God has promised to protect the faithful man, can we take confidence when we're surrounded by ever-increasing darkness? Can we really do that? I mean, can those of us in this little church, can we really gather together and take confidence? Even though the darkness around us in this world continues to grow and its influence continues to expand and we see corruption and we see sin and wickedness, are we going to believe God? That's really the question here. Are we going to believe what he says? Look at how David reacts when he hears from the Lord. This is what he says in verses 6 and 7. David says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. These verses express David's confidence in the Lord. He says they are they're pure words. They're like silver that's been purified seven times. That, there's nothing like magical about being purified seven times. It's, it's, he's talking about the fact it's been completely refined. There's no possibility of imperfection. You see, again, think about the contrast. Back in the, in the earlier verses, in verse 2, he talked about the flattering lips, the smooth lips, but the deceitful heart. See, the, the lips are smooth. The surface is smooth. It, it appears good, but underneath it's corrupt. Here he says, listen, what you see is what you get. It appears pure because it is pure. You'll never find corruption under the surface. You'll never hear God's word and then later find out it wasn't true. He won't speak but mean something other than that. He won't hold back in his heart from what he says with his lips. You see? The word of God. That is pure. It's completely refined. There's nothing under the surface that will make us wonder whether God is really true or not. You see, it's exactly the opposite of the words of men. There's no sense in which God says one thing while thinking something different. And so, we say this, that God's words are completely trustworthy. That's, that's the point that David is driving home here. 
God's words are completely trustworthy. See, trust is built in to everything that he says. We can have absolute confidence and assurance that what he has said is what he will do every single time. So when David says in verse 7, You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. He's speaking in faith. He's believing what God has said. Believing that God will indeed rise up to protect those who have no other means of deliverance. Believing that God will be faithful to his people. The moment that God speaks, it's as good as done in David's eyes. Because God's word is true. And so we have this really interesting uh, psalm, right? David crying out for deliverance, the first four verses describing the, the corruption of speech of the world. David looking around and seeing the wickedness of man as exemplified by their corrupt and, and deceitful speech, their arrogant speech, the self, uh, the, the assertion of independence from God. And then God responds to them. And David clings to the word of God like a, like a drowning man clinging to the life preserver. God's word, that's all David has to hold on to. That's what makes verse 8 so interesting, by the way. As we come down here, God has spoken, David responds in faith, and then you read verse 8 and you go, what in the world do we do with verse 8? He says this, the wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. What does David see? He's heard from God. But what does he see all around him? Does he see God rising up and coming to his defense? Does he, does he hear silence where he used to hear flattering lips and arrogant words? No. In fact, what he sees is the glorification of worthlessness. When I say it, it just sounds like too wordy. The glorification, but that's what he says here. Vileness is exalted. Vileness, that word means worthless here. Worthless things are lifted up. Worthless things are exalted. Worthless things are given the prime place. What happens in a society when worthless things are are lifted up. What happens when we as a people take worthless things, things that are of no value, things that are base, things that are just empty, and we lift them up and we hold them up as if they are the things to which we should aspire. Again, just think about our society. Think about the entertainment that we have. Think about the things that we see around us all of the time, the advertisements and everything. Think about all that. And then try to tell me that we haven't elevated worthless things. We haven't taken things that were base and empty and lifted them up and made them the object of our desire. 
What happens to a society when that happens? What happens to a society when it lifts up worthless things? What happens when corrupt speech is not just accepted? What happens when corrupt speech is defended? What happens when corrupt speech is proclaimed to be good in a society? What happens when lies and flattery go unchecked? What happens when men boast in the strength of their own ideas and their own ability to think apart from and independently of the authority of God? What do you think happens? The Bible tells us that sin begins in the heart. But it finds expression first in our speech. Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Scripture tells us, Jesus said that it's out of the heart that comes all the corruption and wickedness. It comes out through the mouth. So it begins in our heart. It finds expression in the words of our mouth. But ultimately, sin always leads to actions of injustice and violence. And so I think what David is saying here is summed up well by this statement, which I borrowed from another author this week. The battle of words is no side issue. It's wrong for us to say, Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. The battle of words is not a side issue. A weakness here and the enemy is in. If we let down our guard when it comes to speech and words and truth, that's all it takes. A weakness here and the enemy is in. This is a battle that we must fight. We must understand that our words are powerful. To speak with flattering lips, to speak with a double heart, is not a small thing. It's the doorway to every kind of wickedness and violence. We need to say this, words matter, whether they are true or false. Words matter, whether they are true or false. As I studied this week and prepared to preach I was telling Greg and Vito on Wednesday night I felt like I was kind of ahead of where I normally am by Wednesday I was feeling pretty good about things with, my, with regard to my message I came to grips pretty quickly with the basic ideas of Psalm 12 I mean you can read it it's not that complicated as far as the what Psalm 12 is saying there's a few little things here and there but it's pretty straightforward but I began to think about how do I apply this to my life? What real impact does this psalm have on me? And then, of course, I have to then ask, okay, but, but, but okay, start with me. What impact, but then what does it have for you? What, what's the application? What do we take away here? I go back to the basic premise that I said at the beginning, saying it in a sentence. Men distort the truth, but God's word can always be trusted. Think about that statement for a second. Ask yourself, how can I distinguish between the truth and lies? When all of the, around us we hear voices that are calling out with empty words, with false words, with flattering words, and even with treacherous words. 
Where should you turn? Whose voice can you trust? Is it the church? Some people do that. Well, let's just turn to the church. Whatever the church says is probably right. Do you turn to a popular teacher or preacher? There's a lot of them out there. Turn the TV on. Sunday morning, you're liable to find somebody who will tell you something, believe. Whose voice can be trusted? Find something that we read on the internet? Something in a book or a magazine? Some other expert? Some authority? How about the Lord? How about the Lord? His word never fails. You can trust it with your life. And so as I looked at Psalm 12, I thought about this psalm, and I think there are, at least I observed, three lies that we find reflected here in David's psalm, which God counters with truth. Maybe there's more, but there's three that I want to point out to you this morning. And I want to challenge you to consider whether you have believed any of these lies whether you are embracing God's truth with respect to these things. The first lie is this, that words really don't matter. Words really don't matter. That's a a lie. But if you read Psalm 12, certainly David says, The sons of men speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. They speak idle words. Words are not important. Words are a tool to be used to manipulate, to get what we want. Words don't really matter. Now, I think you know deep down that that's a lie. God cares about words because God cares about truth. Men, on the whole, as sinful creatures... We are known for dishonest and arrogant speech. That's what David points out here. But God's words are always truthful and trustworthy. So how do we counteract this lie? The best way to counteract the the lie that says God's words don't matter is to believe, or I'm sorry, that says words don't matter, is to believe that God's words do matter. When you get serious about what God says, When you get serious about reading his word, serious about understanding what it means, serious about applying it to your life, then you'll know that words do matter. Words didn't matter, then these words wouldn't mean much. But these words, well, after large crowds had become disenchanted with Jesus, in John chapter 6, They heard about the great cost of being a follower of Christ, and many of them left. And Jesus asked his disciples if they too were going to walk away. And Peter spoke, and I love what Peter said. He's speaking here for the whole group, but he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Don't tell me that words don't matter. God's words matter. God's word matters where else can we go to hear the words of eternal life so we need to we need to believe this truth we need to reject this lie god's word matters 
The second lie that we find in this psalm is that you are your own master. That's the lie that David quotes from the mouth of wicked men. Verse 4. With our tongue we will prevail, they say. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? This is the lie that you are your own master, that you are in control of your life, that you are the final say. Do you believe today that you're in control? That you can determine your own fate based on the words you speak and the ideas you embrace? Maybe you wouldn't say it exactly that way. But what does your life look like? Does your life look like you're following Jesus Christ or like you're following your own heart? The idea that you're your own man or your own woman is a lie. The truth is expressed very powerfully by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40. He says, all flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You understand you cannot extend your life one moment. You're like the flower that blossoms in a day and then fades away. Even the number of breaths that you take is outside of your own control. And if you can't determine the length of your life, will you bow down before the one who does? Will you recognize the truth that Jesus Christ is your rightful Lord? We counter the lie with the truth. God's truth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's not a negotiable truth. You may not want to believe it or admit it, but that is the truth. Today is the day for you to stop believing that you're your own master and start believing and living according to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and in so doing, you bring glory to God the Father. Well, there's a third lie that David deals with in Psalm 12. It's the lie that there's no hope for our world. You ever feel that way? There's no hope for our world. Things are just too far gone. David looked all around him and he saw corruption and lies. He said there in verse 1, the godly man is fading away. Lord, they're all disappearing. Where are the faithful men? They're all gone. You kind of get an echo there of Elijah. You remember Elijah after he had that great victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, calling down fire from heaven and God doing this incredible thing? Elijah saying to God after that, Oh, I'm the only one left who's following you. The whole nation, everyone has gone after God, false gods. I'm the only one who's faithful. You may look around, it may appear that way, but understand that the hope that David had nearly 3,000 years ago is the same hope that we have today. The Lord is powerful. His promise to help will give you confidence and assurance if you will trust his word. 
You know, the Lord told his disciples in Matthew 16, 18, that he would build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He also told them in Luke chapter 10 and verse 2, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's the Lord's harvest that he has promised. He commissioned his followers. He said to them in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Where man's words should not be trusted, God's words give us hope. The good news of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection still have the power to save the lost. If you'll tell them. If you'll allow the Spirit of God to apply the Word of God to their hearts. My final question for you this morning is, will you trust His Word enough to share it with someone else? Let's close with prayer.